1: If you're a first time uh, person dabbling in wrong think, look, I'll admit it can seem a little bit scary, right? A little antisocial. Hey, what? What a minute! Wait a minute here! You're out of step with the rest of the herd. But I'm I'm serious when I say if you want to survive, if you want to, if you want to remain rooted in reality, you've got to be willing to separate yourself from the herd, and uh, particularly, you know, be willing to move a different direction. And that's that's going to take some courage. It seems like we've been trained from a very early age. If someone's out of step, why, it's our job to punish them and bring them back, you know, into the fold and make sure that they're running in the same direction as the rest of the lemmings. And I'm sorry if that sounds insulting. What do you really think of society as a bunch of lemmings? But I do believe there's wisdom in the saying that uh, men go mad in herds, but come to their senses singly, slowly, and one at a time. Crud, I can't remember the name of the Scottish philosopher who said that now. that's too, it's, it's a wonderful quote, and it really seems to hold true. What a crazy time. By the way, thanks again for tuning in. I know there are a lot of voices out there, a lot of different sources you can turn to for a little better light on the world. My goal here is not to leave you upset. It's not to leave you filled with fear or anger or hatred or certainty that I'm more against them and that group and that person and that idea. My goal is to hopefully leave you more certain about who you are and what you stand for than anything else. So with that said, I you know I had the opportunity, I guess it was uh, last week, I had the chance to to go and and see the movie uh, Sound of freedom and i didn't I didn't take it. I'm sorry i I failed. but uh, here's the thing that blew me away. Someone actually bought all the tickets for one night at one of the local theaters. And basically said, look, till every seat is filled, you know, I'm, I'm willing to buy every seat and make sure that as many people as want to come see it can see it for free. And I thought, okay, there's somebody who's putting their money where their mouth is, who really believes this is a message worth hearing. So I say this from the standpoint of I haven't seen the movie myself, but I have seen a lot of uh, reviews. I've, I've heard from a number of people who've actually gone and seen it. And for those who don't know, this is about... Uh, under Operation Underground Railroad, no, is that it? Yes, it is Operation Underground Railroad. Sorry, I had a moment of doubt there. Tim Ballard's efforts to to fight child trafficking, and he's been at this for a long time. Now, I got—I have to confess this. There are some places where um, ideologically, Tim Ballard and I do not line up. Um, Tim Ballard is a, is a very uh, dedicated um, Abraham Lincoln fan. Me, not so much and and there's places where I've 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 heard him speak and thought man you're so close Tim but uh, but I think you're in error on this but but I absolutely cannot argue with his willingness to get in there and and actually have skin in the game and and make a very noticeable difference in stopping child trafficking which it turns out is it's a much bigger deal than a lot of people think and and here's the the kicker the, the propagandists in much of the corporate media, I'm going to take, for instance, Rolling Stone, for instance, a wonderful article here on ZeroHedge.com about how Rolling Stone chose to review The Sound of Freedom, calling it the QAnon-tinged thriller about child trafficking designed to appeal to the conscience of a conspiracy-addled boomer. Want to talk about some whataboutism or some some justification? I mean, because it really sounds like they're, they're trying to justify that pff, there's no child trafficking going on, and if there was, why, it's probably a good thing. I think this is about how far we've fallen as a culture. And I'm not just talking America. I mean, globally. This is horrific stuff. Jim Caviezel is, of course, the the... Star of this film, uh, portraying Tim Ballard, and like I say, everything I've heard from from people who've seen it, they say like this is this is an absolutely gut wrenching film, and and it's gut wrenching not because of some contrived Hollywood oh the drama was just you know was so well acted and you know they portrayed some imaginary you know Sophie's Choice kind of you know dilemma. What makes it gut wrenching is the fact that it's rooted in the reality. Of what Tim Ballard and his organization have been been fighting against for years. Now, I I don't know about you, but frankly, I don't want to believe it. I don't. But I know it's true. I know that there there are people out there who traffic in children and other human beings as well, and it's it's just unconscionable. And yet here you've got uh, you know this journalist uh, Miles Clee attacking Jim Caviezel as a prominent figure on the conspiracist right and slamming the actor's past claims over elite pedophile rings that kidnap, rape, and murder children to harvest adrenochrome, a compound apparently produced in the brain that reportedly uh, contains, contains psychedelic effects. Now, look, I don't know about uh, elite pedophile rings, but uh, I, can, I do know this. The very powerful people whether it be in America or in other uh, governments or other, you know, uh, other levels of hierarchy throughout the world, they do have a tendency to believe that uh, look, we can operate above the law, and no matter how much spin you know these these corporate media types put on this, it doesn't change the fact that uh, you know we know that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of trafficking. Underage girls to very, very wealthy or well-connected individuals. But those individuals never were prosecuted. Only she was prosecuted. She was found guilty. Well, who was she trafficking to? Well, uh, no one. Doesn't quite make sense, does it? Jeffrey Epstein, who we know, killed himself. Wink, wink. Yeah, he had the goods on a lot of very powerful people. And I'm not encouraging you, you know, hey, therefore, let's start pulling every thread, let's follow every conspiracy down the rabbit hole possible. But I think it's a very reasonable and rational take that uh, people who are told you are the elite, you are so special, you are so much better than everybody else, either because of their money or because of their influence or their fame or their power, I think it's, it's reasonable to conclude that some of these people start to believe it and start to act like it. And that means that if they want to act out sexually with children, they'll do it. I know it's a very unpleasant thought. It's it's ugliness. But here you have a film that actually brings this to light. Not so much going after, you know, the Hollywood elite. Although, you know, I got to confess the people who make up the 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 upper echelons of you know success in hollywood i sometimes wonder if there isn't some kind of a literal selling of their souls in order to to be where they are and and maybe that well that's just jealousy on your part yeah it is you know why why didn't i sell my soul why don't i ever get that chance no i i just I say that because the people who don't go along with them, or the people who do manage to extricate themselves from Hollywood, they're they're blacklisted. I don't know. They find themselves on the outside of that that inner ring, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's a good thing. You know, I congratulate those who who have extricated themselves and found something other than fame and fortune. I think Jim Caviezel is one of those individuals. I I have loved his work but I think I love his integrity even more. By the way, you have to read this this passage here. This is from the Rolling Stone journalist, in quotation marks, who's uh, writing about it. It's a stomach-turning experience fetishizing the torture of its child victims and lingering over lush preludes to their sexual abuse. At times, I had the uncomfortable sense that I might be arrested myself just for sitting through it. At which point, uh, the writer for Zero Hedge says, and really, why would that be, Miles? (laughs) Is that your conscience uh, speaking up? Now, right now, Sound of Freedom enjoys a 99% user rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 75% from Hollywood-type professional reviewers, if you know what I mean. Isn't this something? All the talking points have gone out. Well, the Sound of Freedom, that's nothing more than a QAnon-adjacent thriller seducing America. You know, when, when you can't defend what's indefensible, you try to distract. Well, this is nothing more than QAnon conspiracies, and therefore nobody should pay attention to it. Sounds to me like somebody's getting a little bit too close to the truth, and, and it sounds like it's making the right people very uncomfortable. So what's to be done, right? Do I do I just leave us here? Do we just sit here and wring our hands? Look, I don't know what the answer is. First and foremost, I would say you and I have a duty to make sure that we are living our own lives above reproach, basically keeping our own passions and appetites in order. But I also believe if you if you see something, if you see a truth, even if it's unpopular. Have the courage to speak it and support those people who likewise have found the courage to speak truth to power
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show Show. all right welcome back to the show Look, I'm sorry
1: if I'm starting out on kind of a negative note by, by talking about that, uh, you know, The Sound of Freedom movie. I, I really believe it's a sincere effort to pull back the curtain on some, some pretty nasty stuff that's going on that if people knew about it, they would be far less likely to just play, oh, well, you know, it doesn't affect me. Let's just, you know, go along to get along. I mean, could it be any more clear that the latest target on the part of the activist left is children look at the books that are finding their way into your public libraries that are finding their way their way into the school libraries look at the things that are creeping into the curriculum all this talk about well it's a family friendly drag show and you know pride month it's all about the kids and goodness i mean look you don't have to go looking for this stuff all you do you spend a few minutes on twitter and you will see there's enough evidence out there that it's very clear there are people who are just totally okay with the idea of, uh, these are grown men flashing their genitalia right in front of children. But hey, they're waving a rainbow flag, so therefore this must be good and healthy. Saw one article here where a guy in Canada called police and said, hey, what exactly is the statute for indecent exposure or particularly lewd and lascivious conduct, particularly in front of a child? And essentially the police would say, were saying, well, if it wasn't happening in a pride parade, it would be illegal. But since it's in a pride parade, it's totally legal. Okay, the action is the same thing. There is no moral difference between what is taking place other than the fact that one is being done to the sounds of you know a parade and with rainbow flags waving. And by the way, there are an awful lot of good people who are part of the LGBT crowd. And by good people, I mean just decent people human beings who happen to be gay who are horrified by what is happening within that, that movement it's been co-opted it's been shanghaied and taken for a ride and and it's the activists who are taking this in the direction of trying to normalize pedophilia normalize you know perverting and, and mutilating children they're not down for it anyway can we let me let me switch to something a little more um, uplifting I need this. Probably you could use a little boost as well. This is an essay from Tom or from uh, Paul Rosenberg, rather. He first published this uh, quite a few years ago. I think back in 2013, maybe. It's titled "When Was the Last Time You Held a Baby?" And where we just, I just was taking part in a family reunion uh, over the last couple of weeks, and had a chance to to hang out with a number of uh, uh, nieces and nephews who now have uh, kids of their own. And I gotta say, there is something to this. Paul Rosenberg says, Have you ever noticed that pessimistic and depressed people avoid babies? Now he says, I'm sure there are exceptions to this statement, but on the whole, I think it's accurate. Dark, gloomy minds shy away from babies. And he says, I think there's something to learn from this. Here's another thought he says, There's a psychological need to be around small children. I'm convinced that we need a sufficient number of children in our lives if we're to function well. Over time. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, Well, I can't point to particular studies. I'm convinced that interactions with children keep us properly balanced, that we become unbalanced in some way when we're without them for too long. And so he says, If these thoughts are true or anywhere close to true, they're things we should pay attention to. So the first question he asks is, Okay, why babies? Well, he says, Babies have strong effects upon us because they reset us mentally. They pull us back to less damaged states of mind. They're a sort of untainted comparator, a tool to help calibrate our minds and our sense of life. With babies, we are confronted with raw humanity, newly introduced into the world, headed into unlimited possibilities. To say it another way, babies provide a sort of spiritual reset. They take us away from the dark mental loops most people live in and confront us with a nearly blank human slate. Without such resets, we tend to lose our vigor, our energy, our forward inertia. And conversely, when we lose our sense of purpose and value, we stop having babies. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone has to have babies, of course. Some of us don't want to, some of us can't, some of us have yet to find a suitable partner. But all of us, or nearly all of us, need to be near small children from time to time, being a caring aunt or uncle is probably enough, but that level or something approximating it is almost a necessity for a vigorous human life. Or, he says, so it seems to me. Now, he says, I'm pretty sure I'm misstating this in some significant way, but he says, I also think I'm close enough to make the point, so I'll add this. Civilizations and cultures that lose their sense of purpose, their sense of direction, their moral confidence... Those cultures also cease to produce babies. And he says, before I go on, let me give you a passage from G. K. Chesterton's book Heretics. I think it adds a bit, a bit of depth to this discussion. Quote, We ought to always primarily, we ought always primarily to remember that within every one of these new minds, there is a new universe, as new as it was on the seventh day of creation. In each there is a new system of stars, new grass, new cities, a new sea. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg says, pick her up, hold her, look as deeply into her as you can. Hold the beautiful boy and imagine the kind of life you want for him. Let the experience recalibrate you and start imagining a better world. Then go out to build it, because the seeds we sow will determine what these babies reap. He says babies pull love out of us in specific ways. We tend to see them as objects of love, whether it be their innocence the hope of humanity's continuance, or whatever. We latch onto them as vessels we can pour the best of our love into. Now he says, I define love as a hunger to bless, and that's precisely what babies draw out of us. This, perhaps above all others, is a terribly healthful thing to feel. To put it simply, Paul Rosenberg says, babies help us to function as benevolent beings. It's they who help us back to a sense of purpose, of direction, and moral clarity. That struck me as, as a particularly powerful essay. And it's probably because I've had the chance to experience this now somewhat as a grandparent. And that sense of, uh, you know, holding my first grandchild, wow, what, a, what an amazing feeling it was to look at another little human being and recognize, oh yeah, we were all like this. Now, I have six kids, so there was a point where you know, after after the second or third kid, you know, you kind of get a little bit jaded, and all right, this is another, you know, two years of diapers and whatnot. And anyway, you can become a little bit calloused because uh, there are a lot of ups and downs when it comes to uh, to raising kids. But there's something about, particularly a newborn baby, there's an innocence and a purity there that, if, if you're not careful, will, will remind you that hey you and I were once in that state. This is hard to remember, right? Because we, we kind of get caught up in, well, here's the now and here's the way I see the world and, and we forget. There was a time when we were innocent when we didn't have all these labels and scars on us that the world likes to impose as we go about living our lives. So when you see that uh, innocence and when you see that, uh, that beauty... Of a promising new life. It does kind of dredge up, you know, some of the, the more noble impulses that exist within us that we sometimes forget. We bury them under concerns about, well, who's gonna be president? Who's gonna, you know, pass this law or that law? And what are what are what's this political group doing? Again, I'm I'm saying this from the standpoint of having spent, you know, a pretty fair amount of time with a lot of different family members. I forget until I do that that uh, the really important stuff in this world begins and ends with family. Really. That's the stuff that's going to matter in the long run. I don't think any of us are going to be sitting there on our deathbeds as we, you know, evaluate our lives. What kind of a life did I live? What kind of a mark did I leave on the world? Will anybody remember me? They're not going to remember you for, I uh, remember that, uh, that really bitchin' truck that uh, I used to drive or... You know, the, the square footage of, of my third house, my vacation home. I mean, that's cool. I'm not, uh, I'm not denigrating those things, but the things that you're going to really cherish and the things that you'll hopefully take with you are the love of your family members, the respect of your family members, and the relationships that will follow you into eternity.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks again for being part of our uh, small but growing audience of truth seekers and people who are willing to step outside of the comfort zone to live up to a higher calling than simply being a consumer and binging on Netflix and, you know, otherwise just making pleasure seeking the highest form of life. By the way, I want to thank my sponsors, including Monticello College.org, Lifesavingfood.com, TMCP Nation, that's the modern conservative podcast, my friend John Harvey, and also climbingupward.com. Something I want to mention too, uh, I heard from Mark Her from the Center of Self-Governance, Center Center for Self-Governance, rather, uh, this last week. He shared with me a remarkable course that they will be offering and uh, i'm going to have him on the show to talk about this it's a course called foundations and self-governance about discovering your self-governance about learning the power system and control the systems of governance 17 lessons i think it costs about 20 bucks for this uh, curriculum but they really do remarkable work and if you're one of those people who wants to take it beyond just well i just want to sit back and hear brian tell me all about what everything's like. That's a great start, but you know and I know that uh, we all have things we could be doing. So I'm going to be reaching out to Mark. I'll have him on the show a little bit later this week. And uh, we're going to talk about this this program. And hopefully it's something that uh, you would find useful for yourself, maybe for your kids, your grandkids. We all have a lot of heavy lifting ahead of us. I don't believe that things are going to get easier in the near term in fact i think things are are becoming more complicated by the moment and very likely will become intensely complicated very very soon i'm not saying that out of a sense of doom and gloom i'm just saying it's uh, it's the reality so let's let's focus on what we can do and i would i would encourage you to uh, adopt the idea that you know there's a reason why you are living through this particular time I've heard the phrase warrior of light, and I don't want to make it sound like everything is war. Let's come on, war, war. But I do believe that uh, the things that are best, I think the, the, the freedoms of conscience and personal liberty and, and the, the things that make life most meaningful, require people who are willing to stand up and to defend them. I think you're one of those people. Probably doesn't come as news to some of you. For some, it's like, not me. But I think God has, uh, has sent you here at this time because you have what it takes to be a bearer of light. I'll just leave it at that. Let's take a moment here to talk about t- discouragement. I'm sure, I'm sure that it's, it's very common to find it right now, especially among people who are paying attention, right? <laughs> You're pretty sure that yeah things are, things are not getting better as, as I'd hope they would be. Well, I've got an article here by Richard Chiero, This is from AmericanThinker.com with some great insights into the underlying uncomfortable reality at the core of America's malaise. And he starts out by listing off a few things that I think we would be familiar with. Massive corruption in government, lying by public officials, office holders receiving bribes, unjust prosecution of political opponents, justice meted baited on political affiliation, news and information dissemination based on allegiance to a particular worldview, parents denied the right to mold and shape their own children and instead being forced to yield those rights to the state by law, forced celebration of deviant behavior with a demand for approval of same or else the compromise of a once muscular military into one which is inundated with self-defeating progressive policies. And we could go on. He says the symptoms of decay noted above are occurring virtually unabated in this country right now and in the West in general, and they are directly linked to the widespread adoption of leftist ideologies. These have been embraced by many in our institutions, public and private, and have captured the imagination of our youth. Ironically, they represent policies that just a decade or two ago would have been scorned and reviled by those same individuals who now accept and promote them. And the question is, why? Why has there been such a departure from the guiding principles and values that launched the United States and the West to greatness for so long? What's changed? That's a good question, right? Well, he says, one one key underlying reason is the turning away of or the complete lack of interest by so many in the Judeo-Christian values and principles that catapulted our civilization to prominence in the first place. That turning away has resulted in a nation that is starved for the knowledge of God and the objective truths of God, with all his precepts and standards that make up a just culture, abandoning those we now find ourselves subsequently awash in sin and lawlessness we have in effect a, we have in effect in large part become our own gods we shunned the transcendent beauty of a holy god and replaced it with a vacuum of belief that we fill with whatever suits our desire at a given moment in time and this will only accelerate as time goes on our culture our system of government was not designed to thrive in an environment such as this instead we can expect open tyranny by that same government in the not so distant future John Adams, along with other founders, observed our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington said reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. Religion, he thus suggested, is necessary to the preservation of free government. As Mark D. Martin, Dean of the School of Law at Regent University, wrote, Why did they believe that the success of the union ultimately depended on the virtue of the people? Well, simply put, the founders knew that the government was downstream from culture. A virtuous people would courageously defend the rights endowed by their creator and restored by the blood of patriots. Now, the author here says, I read that last line and asked myself, what the hell happened to us during COVID? Our rights were trampled on the left and right, and very few of us stood up and said No. What of the churches of America, the very bastions of salt and light? He says to my knowledge, very few pastors or priests said anything publicly. But what pressure could they have biblically applied back then, let alone today against the raging of woke, the canceling of dissenters, the shutting down of religious speech, while the depravity of a vocal minority commands the day? As evangelist Mario Murillo opined, we would take away their power we could take away their power overnight if only a specific group would speak out. There are four hundred thousand men and women who are Protestant ministers in the United States—United States, rather. They lead the largest voting bloc in America, yet the vast majority of them refuse to speak out on even the most incontrovertible and egregious acts of woke. Why don't they? That one stings. Now, the Barna Group is perhaps the most respected research and polling organization in the USA as it relates to the church. These very questions were asked of thousands of pastors and leaders in various polls over the past few years. And the results are unsurprising. When asked, on which issues do you feel limited or pressured to speak out about as it relates to homosexuality? 44% said limited since they were unwilling to offend, while 37% felt pressured to speak on the subject. As it relates to same-sex marriage, 22% felt limited, 32% felt pressured. When asked what their key concerns were, 72% said watered-down gospel teaching. Now the author says it strikes me as odd that such a high percentage would indicate this. 66% had high concern for the culture's shift to a secular age. 46% said negative perceptions of the church, while 36% indicated hostile culture toward Christianity. How do you think Christian leaders and martyrs through the ages would respond to those last two? Roxanne Stone, editor-in-chief of the Barna Group, said, The pressure for leaders, and especially faith leaders, to satisfy everyone on all sides and to avoid offense is very real today, especially in the digital era. So to many, fear of offending and perhaps being labeled a hate monger is the core reason for not speaking out and taking a strong biblical stand on some of the key issues of the day. Related to this finding, George Barna himself observed, our studies showed that Americans are neither deep nor sophisticated thinkers. Most people seem more interested in living a life of comfort and convenience than one of logical consistency and wisdom. Our children will continue to suffer the consequences of following in the unfortunate footsteps of their parents and elders. People who are willing to fight for a more reasonable way of thinking and acting can make a difference, but it will be slow progress. Wow. The underlying uncomfortable reality at the core of America's malaise is that in the public square, we have largely abandoned God, along with the biblical roots of our founding. Our churches seem to have acclimated to the culture or are unwilling to be the salt and light it so desperately needs. Not all, mind you, but too, too many. Sin has been normalized to such an extent that we're no longer alarmed by it, but rather desensitized. The last exit on America's moral highway was Sodom. We are past that symbol of... Depravity, but there's always hope. And I'm going to come back to uh, why the author feels hope here in just a few moments. We're coming up on our break here, but the bottom line is there is a spiritual component to the difficulties that we're facing today, and and by extension, there is a spiritual answer to solidly facing those difficulties. I'm not telling you, you better start going to church. I'm just saying, get right with God, and you'll find a lot of things will fall into place, regardless how chaotic things are.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show just want to finish
1: up this uh, commentary from Richard Chiero this was published on americanthinker.com the underlying uncomfortable reality at the core of america's malaise i don't know if you're feeling this i suspect uh, i suspect you are if you if you're paying attention to what's going on you know hey uh, you know <laughs> this is not right uh, we're not uh, we're not in an ascendant uh, kind of uh, place right now in american society And by the way, acknowledging that is not the same thing as, well, I guess we're screwed, so let's just, you know, throw our hands in the air and give up. No, this is a a call to stand firm and to to be a source of light wherever possible. So where do you find hope? Well, in this case, Mr. Chiero says, look, I remember back in 2001 when we lived near the Great Lakes Naval Training Center in Illinois. We were allowed to host recruit sailors on major holidays. And he says, it was Thanksgiving, not long after 9-11. I asked the three young men sitting in our living room why they joined. To a man, they said, I saw the towers go down. I knew I had to fight for my country. Now, those brave young men and women are still out there, along with many, many praying dads, moms, grandparents, and yes, godly, courageous pastors, all willing to eschew comfort and take a stand against tyranny. Let's pray they stand up and their numbers expand. We need them now. Now, I know the the comforting thought here for most of us is, well, yes, we do. And I hope that uh, they do stand up. But uh, you realize, of course, or at least that discomfort, that little, uh, you know, gurgle in your stomach is, does that mean that I need to stand up too? You know the answer. Yes. Yes, it means you need to be willing to stand up too. Well, but Brian, there's risk in that. What if someone criticizes me? What if they call me names? What if they, what if they you know, try to cancel me? That's a risk. Not going to lie. It could happen. The question is, what do you believe in deeply enough that you would actually be willing to suffer for it? In fact, let me take it one step further. Okay, let's, let's just uh, cross right over into, you know, full-blown, I guess, fanaticism in some people's minds. Is there anything in your life that you hold so dear that you would not only be willing to suffer for it, but you would be willing to die? You'd be willing to lay down your life for it. Now, I don't expect an immediate, you know, pat answer. Well, of course, yes, my wife, my kids. Blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of thing that you you really have to sort out. you know, you got to think that through. and uh, And hopefully there is something that you believe in strong enough that you would do that. I don't think it makes you a fanatic, by the way. I think that uh, you have to be willing to look historically. Um, I like the founding generation as a good example of people who had moral clarity to know when it was appropriate to stand up, to withdraw their consent from the powers that be, and to take responsibility for governing themselves, knowing full well that the powers that be weren't just going to say, well, okay, eh, see ya." you know, they, they tried to fight to keep them part of Great Britain. And so they, they were forced to, to basically put their lives and their blood on the line to stand up for what they believed in. And for those who think that's just, that's such a radical way of looking at things, look, it's the reality. Throughout human history, the, the people who have sometimes had to stand up and do hard things, if they did it from a sense of moral clarity and from a place where they clearly could see the difference between right and wrong, and this is the important part, If they were willing to humble themselves and ask for God's help, that's when humanity moved in more positive directions. It didn't happen all at once. Little events that build, little shifts that take place that alter the course of history. Unfortunately, there are also some uh, cycles that play out here. The pride cycle being one of them, the more prosperous and comfortable we get, the more we tend to go towards laziness and wickedness and pleasure-seeking As you know, that's really what life is all about. Until we find ourselves apathetic, dependent, maybe sometimes in outright bondage. And the only thing that historically tends to release people from that type of bondage is when they have suffered enough that they find great spiritual faith that moves them in a direction toward freedom. Sorry to be so blunt. Sounds like, well, you're talking like quite the revolutionary today, but I think this is true. And I'm not insisting you agree with me. I'm just putting it out there and asking you to please consider if if there's something to it. All right, two articles I want to touch on in the closing minutes here. Annie Holmquist, love her writing. If you haven't subscribed to her Substack, Annie's Attic, it's actually AnnieHolmqvist.substack.com has a wonderful article on emotion-based schooling is not the education our children need, and this is this is really important because there's there's a real move to educate kids along emotional lines, and they even call it social emotional learning. That's that's another way for for teaching critical race theory among other things to school kids. Annie says to uh, mark the end of the school year. Gallup enlisted students in grades 5 through 12 to rank their schools in a June report card. Now, with an average grade of B-, minus, the overall score isn't so bad. Looking closer, though, at the individual categories tells a different story. And she includes a chart that shows the higher-ranking categories were in areas related to emotional support, such as racial and gender respect, safety, and inclusion. The lower-ranking categories, however, were more in line with what school is supposed to emphasize. So less than a quarter of students ranked the quality of teaching at their schools as excellent. Preparation for the future and introduction to possible careers came in at 20% and 17% respectively. What about uh, excitement uh, about learning? That came in dead last with only 13% giving their schools a grade, an A grade. And by the way, the stuff that, that scored highest, this is the emotional stuff. Regardless of who you are, or uh, respecting who you are, regardless of your race, race, ethnicity, gender, and identity. That's really important. They put that up. But that was one of the highest scoring ones. Keeping you physically safe. Making you feel included. Exposing you to ideas and opinions that are different from your own. Using technology in new and exciting ways to help you learn. And then we start to get into the nuts and bolts here. Quality of teaching, supporting your mental health, preparing you for the future, Teaching you in ways that adapt to your unique learning needs. Teaching you about potential careers. Making you excited about learning. Annie Holmquist says these numbers are definitely concerning, but they're not surprising. Unfortunately, the institutional method of schooling, which today's schools employ, has led directly to just such a scenario. Author John Taylor Gatto saw this play out repeatedly in his years as a teacher in New York. Confirming that schools are experts in stroking the emotional ego of children, but such emphasis on the emotional hides a deeper purpose. In his book, Dumbing Us Down, he said, By stars and red checks, smiles and frowns, prizes, honors and disgraces, I teach kids to surrender their will to, a pre- to the predestined chain of command. Now this same chain of command subsequently hinders learning. It's exchanging true education for emotional and transient rewards, creating indifference instead. Again, John Taylor Gatto, quote, The fourth lesson schools teach is indifference. By bells and other concentration-destroying technology, schools teach that nothing is worth finishing because some arbitrary power intervenes both periodically and aperiodically. If nothing is worth finishing, nothing is worth starting. Don't you see how one follows the other? Love of learning can't survive this steady drill. Students are taught to work for little favors and ceremonial grades which correlate poorly with their actual ability. By addicting children to outside approval and nonsense rewards, schools make them indifferent to the real power and potential that inheres in self-discovery reveals. Schools alienate the winners as well as the losers. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says the methodology of today's institutional schools not only teaches students to be indifferent to present learning, it also teaches them to be indifferent to their future prospects. How? By alienating them from the very individuals who could expand their horizons and inspire them to do great things. Gatto explains, quote, The great crisis that we witness in our schools is interlinked with a greater social crisis in the community. We seem to have lost our identity children and old and old people are penned up and locked away from the business of the world to a degree without precedent nobody talks to them anymore and without children and old people mixing in daily life a community has no future and no past only a continuous present End quote. that's really profound so in essence the students recently surveyed by gallup recognize exactly what's going on in schools they just may not be aware that it's intentional Annie Holmquist says the good news is that there is a way out of the emotion-based learning-killing environment of today's schools. Independent study, community service, adventures and experience, large doses of privacy and solitude, a thousand different apprenticeships, the one-day variety or longer. These are all powerful, cheap, and effective ways to start a real reform of schooling. Again, that's according to John Taylor Gatto. So the question is, do we have the energy and guts? To break our children free from the system, marching to the beat of a different drummer in order to give them a brighter future by teaching them to be lifelong learners. I got a link to Annie's article that's in today's show notes. This is for July 10th, 2023. Check it out at the BrianHydeshow.com.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.